founded his company Wealth Factory back many, many years ago with four partners. In 2006, had a tragic accident. He then really minimized. It sounds like made the company even more cash flow positive by getting focused, especially on growing at a reasonable rate. He's had many bestsellers or written many books. Uh, his focus is, again, on take-home cash. It's as simple as that. Uh, in terms of money and what you entrepreneurs should be doing with your cash, uh, listen to this over and over again. Check out Garrett's stuff at wealthfactory.com. This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 units sold mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. Many of you listening right now don't have time to listen to every B2B SaaS CEO that I've interviewed. If you want to get access to the database I've created with year-over-year growth rates, customer accounts, margins, and many, many other data metrics and data points, you can go to getlatka.com. Here's the thing, though. This database, I keep it to myself. It's so freaking valuable. And to preserve the quality of the data and make sure that the people that have access to it have a true advantage, I'm only letting 10 companies on each month. So we're full this month, but you can go to getlatka.com to get on the waiting list for next month. And look, there's big people on the waiting list. I mean, the biggest VCs you've ever heard of. You've probably heard of them. They're big, private equity, billions and billions under management. So it's an impressive waiting list. Go get on now at getlatka.com. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Garrett Gunderson. He is the chief wealth architect at Wealth Factory and author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows. Wealth Factory helps entrepreneurs optimize cash flow, streamline their finances, and keep more of their hard-earned money so that they can make more powerful investments in their best wealth sector, their business. Garrett, are you ready to take us to the top? Let's do it, man. All right. So, so you wrote a book called Killing Sacred Cows. Why on earth do you do that? Everyone says you just lose money writing a book, and it's a lot of energy, and it's not fun. So for two years, I was wanting to write a book just so I could be cool. If I was to be candid about it, like you have a man bun, you're already cool. So I didn't have it back then. Oh. So I didn't know that there was an easier way to do it. And, uh, <laughs> but then I had my business partners and I had this meeting where we're like, all right, here's the deal. What's something the entire team could get behind? We had 42 employees and we had a, a two day retreat and everybody's like, they wanted to do a book like as an organization. And two months later, my, my business partner died in a plane crash. And so it got, a, got put on the back burner. But then I just got so tired of hearing people say, I wish I would have known this information before. I'd have millions of more dollars. And I just hear, heard that over and over. And after my partners died and I took like four months trying to keep the entire firm growing or even alive during that time, I decided to spend some time at home. I got rejuvenated, re-energized, and I thought, how can I have more leverage to just kind of share this message that is very different than what most people are hearing about finance? And I wrote the book in like 30 days. Now I edited and did that whole process over nine months, but I got the manuscript done in 30 days where I'd done nothing for two years, but 72 pages. And did you decide to self-publish or work with a publisher? Worked with the publisher, hired a promotion firm. I didn't really have- Who'd you hire? Uh, I hired 
uh, promote a book and I hired uh, Greenleaf because Greenleaf was a co-publisher so they would get distribution for me but it could be my message and they weren't going to and I didn't really have a, a big database or a lot of knowledge around marketing at the time so a traditional publisher usually wants either like a celebrity that has a big following or an entrepreneur that has a large database or you know has a good way to sell the books and so I had to kind of do it at a more grassroots level. Who was the main you mentioned Greenleaf was co-publisher who was the other publisher? So, well, co-publishing co is where there's really self-published, co-published, or full-published. So co-publishing is, you know, I'm actually paying for some of the upfront costs, and I get a book or split on the back end, but their deal is distribution, editing, so it's kind of a hybrid model. Got it. So, I mean, most models, like, you know, I just signed a deal with Random House. I don't know if I can share this, but, you know, most on average, people are taking 20% royalties or, or sometimes a little less. You're getting, what, like 30 40 50%? Yeah, I mean, you're getting a lot higher percentage depending on what you can negotiate. Got it. Uh, which helped me because then when I got my next kind of publishing deal, it was normally a 7% royalty with this company, and I got a 50-50 deal because now I actually have leverage. all this no yeah, leverage and knowledge of how it worked. And so when they made the first offer, I said, well, what if I was willing to do this, this, this? And here's the other things I have working. And they're like, they were, it was one of five people that got a 50-50 deal. What, what so, were those this, this, and this is? Well, one is I already had a, a big possibility for distribution based upon my existing audience. I already knew how to sell it before the product was done because I sold 22,000 copies of my book before it was even published. Killing Sacred Cows? Yeah. How'd you do that? Uh, what I did was I called a lot of people in the financial world that really resonated with the message. I called a lot of people that... Um, you know, that they could benefit from me speaking or doing a webinar for them. And I just sold 100, 250 or 500 copies based upon how much they wanted, you know, me to do for them. And then also there are people that they were distributing the book to. I had an interview series that they got before the book was released that the interview series was never sold again and would never be released again once the book came out. So all of a sudden people are, you know, getting a book, but they're getting this, this you know, better program before the book even came out. So when I sat down with uh, Nightingale on the next deal, I was just like, look, I'm willing to throw in this bonus, do this thing, here's this audience, here's these people that are all you wanted to promote. And I sent them a list of like 80 people. They were like, okay, this is more of a partnership than it is a royalty agreement. Yep, and, and, and why, why sign with them at all? Um, because at that time, this was back when they were more relevant and existed. What year? Uh, this was 2008, and I had always grown up listening to this stuff and you know, kind of had this nostalgia that was attached to it You know, as I walked in to record. The other thing is they had, like I hadn't done an audio-based program that also included all the written materials, and they had great sound engineers, and uh, it, it was more of like a childhood dream than it was maybe the best business decision at the yeah. time. But, you know, I got it, – it, it was a great program that I ended up getting um, full licensing rights to after a period of time, and now I can distribute it however I want, and I do it digitally. I want to jump more into wealth factor here in a second, but it, you know, it's funny. Um, it's funny. You say that it's like these deals, the industry just is, doesn't have the cachet that it used to. And, uh, I joke with the folks at portfolio random house. I say, I just want you to know, uh, I'm signing this deal, but I barely like it. It's barely enough to hear from just going and self publishing. Cause you keep all the control and all the rights. I just self published a book last year, put it up for a thousand dollars on Amazon because I don't really care. Like, because a lot of financial advisors want to buy it, and I wasn't really looking to get it in the wrong financial people's hands. I wanted to really take concepts that were the highly affluent were utilizing, 
through private placement and things and say, how can we translate this to someone that isn't highly affluent or maybe they're just starting a business and they need to start, you know, having cash on hand but not having it exposed and how do they perpetuate that? And so as I wrote the book, I just created a lot of marketing structures around it that actually generate leads for other financial people that I've endorsed or that I support. So that we're actually implementing things from the book and uh, getting people that are, you know, not working with the higher end individuals to work with these individuals that are just starting out and actually make an impact. So that self-published book is making me a lot more money than my New York Times bestseller ever did simply because I've licensed it to other financial professionals. That's interesting. And what was the name of the, of the bestseller? The bestseller was Killing Sacred Cows, and this one's What Would the Rockefellers Do? Oh, the Rockefellers Do. That was your first, that was that your one you co-published with Greenleaf? Uh, no, that was, that was the uh, Killing Sacred Cows. What Would the Rockefellers Do was last year. Oh, oh, well, who, who'd you, what book did you sign with Nightingale? Uh, New Rules to Get Rich. Oh, got it. So that, that one isn't out yet or is, was not a bestseller? Uh, I mean, it, we didn't, it was a, classified as an audio program because there was more audio than there oh. was um, material. I see. So huge packaging. I see. Rockefellers do I self-published. I self-published another book called uh, Portal to Genius. And my self-published books have been very profitable. And uh, the published book, though, did build me a, a ton of relationships, added a bit of credibility at a time when I was in my 20s. And, you know, to a certain How old are you now? My business. I'm 39. 39. Okay, so I jumped right in. I was curious about book stuff because that's what's top of my mind. But let me take a step back for a second. So, um, uh, my audience, I think, would be very interested to hear from you since you work with entrepreneurs. If someone in my audience has just sold their company and they made, you know, they got an exit, it was kind of an aqua hire, but they made 300 grand in extra cash or maybe a little more, maybe a million or five million. What would you recommend that entrepreneur do with that cash moving forward? Let's say they're 33 years old. Well, most of them, this is where they start making mistakes because they understood something about their business. That doesn't mean they understand something about investing. And a lot of times they get seduced into things that sound really good, but are really just distractions in a investment disguise, right? Wrapped as an investment. So I think that if they've just sold their cash cow or the, the way that they made money, it's now time to go back to work on figuring out how to achieve economic independence again, where they have enough cash flow coming in as recurring revenue to cover their basic expenses. And they shouldn't be investing in anything speculative until they have that complete platform figured out. And when they go to invest, really take into consideration their investor DNA, meaning what are their core values? What are their core drivers, the, the things they're paying attention to? What are their core competencies, the areas, maybe even in the sector in which they just sold something and the contacts they had there? And then stay focused instead of diversifying. Diversification only, you know, if they were worth you know, you know, millions and millions and tens of millions, and maybe there's a, a, a good argument for diversification, but if it's that small amount of money, they better focus and protect it and really think about the downside of that. And it might mean, depending on where their energy is and everything else, is there a way for them to invest that in a business that they can actually have some influence over? Because there is no magic product or magic investment. And a lot of things that turn out really well that we read about, we don't get to read about all the things that totally sucked and confiscated people's money. And I just see far too many people lose a lot after they sell a business because they're on a high, their confidence high, but their investor intelligence isn't always as high as their confidence is, and therefore they get into really risky situations. Mm -hmm. So, so coach me, right? Like in two minutes, right? 
Let, let's say I have a small amount of money uh, to, to, to now invest. Let's say $2 million. I'm in software. I have a podcast. I'm writing a book. Uh, I'm real. Software is my main thing. I put, you know, I save 70% of my kind of income that I make from businesses that that's different from kind of this one time cash event that I had. Um, I put some money in real estate and that makes, you know, five, six, seven, ten, you know, up to 10 grand a month. Uh, coach me. Are you really good at real estate? Is that your game? Um, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm good at it, but I'll, uh, you know, I just have one simple rule, which is I won't buy, uh, it has to be a college property and it has to be, the price has to be 10 X gross revenues. And if it doesn't hit those two things, I don't buy it. Well, the thing is risk is in the investor. It's never in the investment. So the question is, if I tell you where to invest, I might be telling you based upon my biases and everything I know. So I'd have to know, like you mentioned real estate. So that's why I stopped there. And I was like, well, are you good at that? Is there opportunity? And I think the biggest the second biggest mistake people make is they think that they need to invest because the money's there. Sit in cash and pounce when the opportunity's right. You know, Ted Turner grew an empire. So Capital cities, right? Things were really, you know, in turmoil. And when everybody's fully invested and things get chaotic, a lot of times they don't cash out or they can't go take advantage of those next opportunities. So I would say, hey, number one advice, be patient. Don't feel like you need to deploy all this money. I know people try to convince everyone, invest early, invest often, and time value of money, but there's a lot more value in finding the right things and then waiting for the right opportunities. And I know, as entrepreneurs, we don't always have the most patience, but cash is okay. Rookie investors always stay invested. Pros, they sit in cash until the opportunity's right, and they invest in things they know. So, you know, if you still have a business at that point, are there businesses you could acquire that you could monetize better because of those existing businesses? I've worked with a lot of clients. That way. I just talked to one of my clients before, you know, we got on the phone. They got, they got like 400 grand sitting in a self-directed IRA. At the same time, they're selling a home, moving states, um, moving to a new business that they've, been, that they've launched, selling their old business. And all I did was say, well, why don't we move that to self-directed? And then there's these loans that you guys have in normal cash that you went out, buy those loans out with your self-directed and you just freed up an extra $400,000 of cash that you could do what you want instead of having the restriction of an IRA. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's always based upon the individual. And I think it's like, if you go to a doctor and like, Hey, what should I do for my health? And before they ask you any questions or tell you to have surgery, that's what I think is the problem with investing is people think it's like, Oh, this is a good investment. No, there's good investors and bad investors. And every now and again, there's lucky investors, but don't try to let luck fool you into thinking that you're intelligent. I'm going to go super tactical here at the risk of really turning on some listeners and probably losing some others, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, um, I just uh, became kind of an LP in, in, a, in a venture capital fund that my friend raised it was a $30 million VC fund, blah, blah, blah. One of the mistakes I think I made after looking at it with my tax people, they said, Nathan, what you should have done is put a bunch of your money in a, in a SEP IRA and then use the money in the supplier to then invest into the, you know as an lp into that entity that tactic is that something you see replicated over with entrepreneurs you work with i think they just gave you horrendously bad advice why look man i'll give you the five-part framework for tax the two things to avoid the three things to do and the first thing to avoid is never confuse deferral with deduction. Mm -hmm. Too many people think if they defer tax, that's a good thing. But my question is, do you want to make substantially less money in the future? And do you think the government's going to lower taxes in the long term? In 1913, when we had the U.S. Revenue Act, it was a temporary act, and yet the top average bracket's over 60% in its history. So we're historically at a low rate. So if you're going to have more money, 
or the taxes go up, deferring taxes might mean that it ends up filling like 100% tax because you never utilize that SEP IRA money. The government owns 100, they control that plan. They 100% control it. You're now a beneficiary of it. So, so where does this rule play? Because if I made this black and white and say, okay, Garrett, you're not a fan of SEP IRAs, of Roth IRAs, of anything like that, anything diverted, you're not a fan of. Where does that rule break? Don't put words in my mouth, bro. Well, no, no. I'm, Garrett, ex Garrett, excuse me. Let, Garrett, let me just be clear. I like to go black and white so you can tell me where the rule breaks. So tell me where that is not the case. Where, where it would be? Where you, where you would be a fan of deferred versus deduct. Uh, going to accrual accounting versus cash accounting for a business that can then defer taxes for a year and build more strategy. That'd but that's not personal. That's that's for the business, right? Not the personal investor that just made a bunch of cash and is trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, another time that might make sense to defer is you did you uh, you know you're going to sell a business and you know that you're going to take some time off and not earn income during that time. So you defer and then you can start taking that income during time where you have a lower income. But okay. Deferring for 30 years, which most SEP IRAs get people to think about or to age 59 and a half. I'm not a big fan of that at all. Okay. Are there any other instances where, where you would recommend deferral? Uh, you know that you can do a charitable remainder trust sometime in the future that's going to create an offset or you've got some other major tax deductible event like I owned a bunch of artwork that, that appraised for substantially more than I owned it for. And when I donated it, it created a massive tax deduction. So I could defer and then strategically pull money out during that time. But I don't want to, the second rule is don't ever spend money just in the name of saving tax. Like if you wouldn't have spent the dollar anyway, start with your economics first. Tax should be a secondary consideration. And a lot of times people get confused thinking, oh, I'm spending a dollar on something that I wouldn't have spent anyway. But you only save 40 cents. That's a 60 cent cost to you every time you spend that, right? Yep. Let me dive into another very tactical example, because I think a lot of my audience this will apply to or will apply to in the future. Um, they're employee number seven or eight at a venture-backed startup. The, they, they're issued options. The strike price uh, is obviously set. I'm making this up at five bucks or the exercise price. Let's say that company then grows rapidly over the next two to three years, and they want to basically exercise and buy those options. But it, they don't have the cash they would need and they, they wouldn't be able to handle basically the taxes on paying five bucks a share to actually start owning those options. Are there creative ways that people can do that while minimizing the tax burden? There might be, but that's not my field of expertise. So I definitely have a tax attorney looking at that. Okay, like, interesting. You know, that's, that, yeah, I, like that, I like that you're asking the question. Yeah. I, like I like to think through those things, but uh, I don't know the answer to that. What, uh, last question here, usually I lead with this one. How do you make money? Uh, we're not fee-based, we're not commission-based. People write us a check, and then we make sure to put that much or a lot more back into their pocket. So uh, people hire us. We're, we work with primarily entrepreneurs doing between one and $10 million of revenue that don't have high net worth. So you know, people with 50 million or 100 million or more net worth, I highly recommend they go to a family office. Yep. Family offices are phenomenal. So what I built was a virtual family office for those people that wouldn't qualify and they just, you know, write us a, a check anywhere from, you know, $150,000 down to $10,000, depending on the services that we provide. And we have an organization with 
you know, people to give them a second opinion on, on their last three years taxes or their corporate structures or downside protection of their investments or additional ways to improve cash flow, risk management, all those things. But you don't, you don't, I mean, I assume you could probably look at all your past customers and divide, you know, the $10,000 check one time they wrote you with all the money that they then helped you manage, but you don't do it on a fee-based structure. Like if I, if I force you to give me an average, like if someone's putting 2 million with you on average, they're writing you a one-time 10 grand check or one-time 20 grand check or what? We're not actually managing their assets. There's a lot of asset managers. We sit on the same type, side of the table as them and we help them do due diligence. But so it's consulting. As, yeah, as far as asset management, we let the asset managers do that. We're more cash flow management, financial house in order, making sure everything works, put money back in their pocket, give them more money to invest. Got it. And then the last set of questions here before we wrap up with the famous five. What year did you guys experience the strategy of, of the plane crash and your co-founder passing away? That was June 9th of 2006. And it was two of my partners that died in our company plane that crashed. Oh, two, wow. Well. <laughs> okay, and so you... Four total partners, two of, them, two of them died in a plane crash. And the other partner and I actually wrote a book together just last year. So we've stayed pretty close, even though the partnership changed quite a bit after that kind of an event. That's good to hear. You mentioned, though, casually at the beginning that you were at 45 folks on the team prior to 2006, which means you had to have substantial income coming in. I mean, you know, that, that amount of people paid on average $60,000 salaries. You can do the math. Um, I mean, were all those people full time? And if so, back in those days, were you making money the same way that you're making money today? Uh, we weren't making it the same. We were getting paid in uh, more ways back then than we were today. We had a, 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 a we made commissions on financial products back then. We hosted uh, events that were more expensive than some of the things that we do today. But we also had you know um, multiple office locations. And yet we were very regional. We weren't working with people other than kind of like Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming. You know, a little bit of California. Where now. We do everything virtually, so work in all of the U.S. and Canada. We do workshops that are very different than what we did then, where our, our team isn't being paid commissions like it happened back in the past, and we've raised our fees substantially and also getting a lot bigger results now because we, instead of owning the financial team that we owned back then, now we actually outsource that and vet it through a nine-month vetting process so that we're, we could be, I think this is a higher level of trust because we're not now getting paid on accounting and getting paid on legal and getting paid on all that. We're just saying, who are the very best people that could serve our people? We'll charge more for access and management of that rather than getting paid on every little piece. What's your revenue goal for 2017? Uh, well, Ripwater, I don't really, it's not a revenue goal as much as it is uh, what I'm taking home and uh, the simplicity that we have. Spoken like a true wealth manager. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I definitely, uh, on, on the personal side, I like to take home a couple million. Um, I, I'm willing to grow the firm to the point where we don't become less customer intimate. Uh, we grew it a little bit too fast in 2010. Uh, we took on 370 clients, and our normal thing is 125 a year. So I'm willing to maybe grow that to 175 in the next 12 months, and maybe get up to 250 by growing it right. But we had a 12 percent, you know, people dissatisfied back then. We're at one percent now. I like that. It, life's a lot easier. So what are you at now in terms of total customers? What's that? What are you at now in mid 2017? How many customers are you working with? Uh, as far as new customers, we take on, we limit it to 10 a month. 10 so a month, okay. We're capacity. Right now, we had to take June off because we're at capacity, and now we're picking back up again. And what's, what's the team size at today? Uh, we're at 20 internal. 
And then we don't consider the accredited network of all the attorneys, accountants, investment advisors, cash flow. We don't consider that part of the internal team because they're not on our payroll. Well, they're variable. Yeah, they're variable. All right, guys, I talked about this earlier, but I schedule like so many meetings, it would blow your mind. I mean, all my podcast interviews, right? Hundreds of entrepreneurs I talk to monthly, I schedule and you know what? I do it so efficiently. I get them all to agree to my calendar. So all the calls are back to back to back. That means I'm not switching in between tasks all day long. I get them to batch so that I can be very efficient. It's so critical. I use a tool called Acuity Scheduling to do this at nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule. It eliminates the back and forth between me and people I'm trying to meet with. It makes it very simple. And most importantly, they help me keep my no-show rate very low because they send out reminders. Helps you look very professional. So go to nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule to sign up. And you get a great deal. You know, you guys know this. I hit people hard. I make great deals. And Gavin, the CEO, has given us a great deal. If you sign up like normal people, okay, on their website, you only get a 14-day free trial. If you use my link, nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule, you get 45 days free. Okay, it's the best. It's free. Go to nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule right now to sign up. And I'll see you there. Very cool. All right, Garrett, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Besides your own, what's your favorite business book? Man, uh, my favorite business book, Scaling Up. Actually, I have to ask you about this. I, c I can't let you off without asking this. I'm going to hold the book up. Let me grab it. Hold on. Okay. I'm going to try and keep a straight face while I ask this question. Uh, uh, this book, do you recommend it or not? Um, I think if someone's a W-2 middle-class employee, there's some good advice for them. But uh, if you're a business owner, uh, you could you could save the time. Yeah, I read the book. Guys, if you're not watching this on YouTube and you only have the audio, I'm holding up Money by Tony Robbins. I read this book and I go, okay, you're giving 100% of the revenue from the book to you know your feed the thing. That's wonderful. But every company you mention in the book with a link, you own equity in. Like they're, they're, it, th like this financial advice is like not great for like real business people. Um, so it's, I was interested to get your advice. You, you, you play the diplomatic approach there. It was pretty soft. I did a 14-minute video after I read the book. I read it cover to cover because people <laughs> were asking about it. Let me at least say this. He interviews a lot of billionaires, and the billionaires are absolutely giving horrendously bad advice. Here's why. He asked, you know, like, Vogue, what, what should people do? Oh, they should put their money in index funds. Now, did he make money by putting money in index funds or inventing or selling index funds, right? Or Schwab, discount broker. So all the advice is non-business owner, don't own a business that's risky, but Tony made money being world-class at what he does and owning businesses. Yep. So owning businesses will give you an advantage because what, 91% of people worth 5 million or more own a business? So yep. Yep. It's, it's advice for people that aren't gonna take a lot of action to manage fees a little bit more wisely and, and set up more automation, but I would never invest that way. And remind me again what your favorite book was. I, I, I was too busy focused on money when you said it. Uh, I, on the business side, I really love scaling up because I could reference it, you know, kind of over and over again. On the creative side, I think it's The, uh, the, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Hmm. I've not heard of that one. That's a good one. Okay, um, number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? Is there a what? A CEO that you're following or studying, a leader. Um, you know, the, uh, the guy's name is Rich Christensen. He sold 17 businesses. 
Uh, he's written a few books, Bootstrap Business, Zigzag Principle. I uh, follow him just because he's really got life dialed in as far as the kids that he's raised and the way that he's been with his family and that he left the corporate world where he was a you know Mitsubishi Electric president or about.com CEO and then moved into starting his own businesses and running those and then selling them when he hit a certain size to avoid the complexities. I thought, mm -hmm. you know, so. Number three, uh, what's your favorite online tool like HostGator? Favorite online tool? Um, I love OmniFocus. I just like OmniFocus because it's a really nice way to manage everything going on in my life. Number four, <laughs> how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Every night? Man, that's, I'm coming back from Europe. I'm getting like four hours right now. I try to get eight. If I'm lucky, I'm getting six and a half. So I will say average six. Yeah. All right. And what's your situation, Garrett? Married, single, you have kids? I'm married with two kids. Uh, kids are 9 and 12. Been married for 15 years. That's amazing. Okay. And how old are you? You said you're 39, right? 39, yeah. All right. Last question. Take us back 19 years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Uh, I wish that my 20-year-old self uh, knew that it would be okay and that I didn't need to stress as much as I did. <laughs> there you guys have it. It will be okay. He didn't need to stress as much as he did. Founded his company, Wealth Factory, back many, many years ago with four partners. In 2006, had a tragic accident. He then really minimized. It sounds like made the company even more cash flow positive by getting focused, especially on growing at a reasonable rate. He's had many bestsellers or written many books. Uh, his focus is, again, on take-home cash. It's as simple as that. Uh, in terms of money and what you entrepreneurs should be doing with your cash, uh, listen to this over and over again. Check out Garrett's stuff at wealthfactory.com. Garrett, thank you for taking us to the top. Thanks, Nathan.